0: Okay, hey, welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's episode of Warrior's Whiteboard Wednesday, sporting a new t-shirt. Apparently, according to my wife, my dog got it for me for Christmas. Anyway, I guess it's better than my dog eating my t-shirt. Anyway, episode 195, and um, we'll see how many people sign in for this one since uh, we didn't do anything for two weeks. Because yours truly was on a little bit of a vacation that was sorely needed. Um, and I know how folks, um, it's just a habit thing, right? Life creeps in and, um, you know, we often talk about habit development, right? And establishing good habits. Um, but we establish habits all the time, regardless of whether they're intentional or not, right? Um, I'll talk about that after we get started and whatnot, but let's, let's stay on topic, right? Um, something happened during my vacations. Uh, one of the ports of call, um, that we were on, <clears throat> and, um, like I said, I saw one of the most just absolutely atrocious things that I thought, like, I would never see, especially from a police officer. But there could be lots of reasons why it happened. It's just, this just popped out, right? Um, to say, my teacher uh, often. And there, there's even uh, one of these little snippet quotes, right, floating around the Internet. That is just one iteration of of how he said this, right, or how he taught this. Right. Um, but basically, it's in a real fight. There are no rules. Right. So we have to be able to use weapons. OK, um so Weapons is a focus, and I'm going to cover it from four different perspectives during this episode. Um, but I'll share the story about how this whole thing got started and how it generated this, this um, I don't know, need to make this a priority uh, topic uh, as soon as we get back. right? So I'll talk to you in a minute. So the big question is this. How are self-defense and success-minded people like us? Concerned citizens worried about protecting ourselves, our loved ones, and the things we care about from the monsters we know exist in the world. How do we train in a way that gives us the skills, knowledge, and understanding we need without becoming paranoid fighters or killers ourselves, and yet still allows us to be the hero protector the world needs us to be? That's the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Jeffrey Miller, and welcome to Kudan Radio, real training for real people in a real world. Unless you're a Russian bot, in which case... I don't want you on my webcast or my podcast anyway. All right. So I'm back and holy, oh, hey, he look, James is here now. So, uh, James had an emergency that he had to go take care of, um, which is what we do, right? We just, uh, um, I don't know. I almost said fight fires, but that would have been way, like way too close to home anyway. All right. So, um, if you were on during the, um, the little pre monologue or whatever, before, uh, we fire up the title screen. Uh, I had a quote from Hatsumi sensei uh, about uh, you know this this is a, we're talking survival here. Right? I know the word the term self defense gets thrown around a lot, just like uh, wisdom, just like warrior, just like enlightenment, just like uh, whatever, right? Um, but what I found and this is actually something that I cover um, first off first introduction, first training, first whatever, uh, when I'm wearing my corporate workplace violence consulting hat, right, and I'm in there, um, that if you were to write self-defense out as a mathematical equation, and I know a lot of you are already throwing up and tuning out and whatnot because (laughs) math, relax, right? So I'm only going to use one little symbol, right? if I were to write this on a whiteboard or chalkboard or whatever, right, I would write out self-defense equals fighting. And the reason I write that out is because in most people's minds, that that's the equation, right? We talk about self-defense. They immediately think about fighting, right? So in the corporate world, that's something that I have to combat because not teaching their people how to fight. Hatsumi always said he's not teaching us how to fight. He's teaching us how to control evil, right? But not teaching us how to fight. Does that mean that we're, that we're not using fight skills? No, it doesn't mean that we're not using fight skills. There's only so many things you can do to a human body, only so many things you can do with a human body. So, you know, if 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 this is going to turn into a splitting hairs thing, Right. You can call it whatever you want. But, uh, one of the first things I was introduced to way back in 1980 was an expanded mindset where we move from self-defense to self-protection. And again, I know in a thesaurus, in most people's minds, I haven't said anything different. I just used a bigger word. Right. But for most people, self-defense is mano y mano. It's one-on-one. They start might start thinking about multiple attackers or whatever, but self-protection broadens things out into the scope of uh, how do you protect your family against a fire? Um, you know, I've got three fire detection systems from three different companies in my home. Why? Failsafe. Okay? Um, protecting myself against uh, a dog attack. Right? I've been attacked by a dog in my life both as a police officer and first time happened when I was delivering papers, uh, newspapers, when I was 13 or 14 years old. Okay. You know, the, it's docile and don't worry, he doesn't bite. And next thing you know, he had his um, teeth clamped into my inner thigh, right? Just missed the artery. It was just this little frickin' beagle. Anyway, so, um but the more and more I've thought about this stuff over the years, the more i think in terms of survival because that's what we're doing right um for most of us we're not choosing to be in these kind of situations for most of us and this is why the tagline under my warrior concepts international bujinkan kudo dojo or bujinkan uh, Morino tori dojo it says self protection and personal development right the long form is personal Professional self-protection and personal development for those who want the best, right? But self-protection and personal development—it's um, the personal development side, right? We want to—we want to create the life that we've always wanted to live, and we're developing these skills to protect that life and anybody in it that I choose to protect from anything or anyone that threatens to take that away, right? So it's not the same right self-defense does not equal fighting it does in most people's minds and again it's an uphill climb uh when I'm in the corporate world it's i don't know it's a weird animal in the self-defense needed to martial arts world because um, people people grab a term and they want to hold on to it it's kind of like sensei right it, this is what it means right or they they need that as a title they need, whatever okay um but anyway so, but let's go back to Hatsumi Sensei's quote, and if, if you signed in late, this is what I, I let off with, right? In a real fight, there are no rules, so we must be able to use weapons, right? To most people, again, self-defense equals fighting, right? No, no weapons are cheating, man. If he didn't bring a weapon, you don't bring a weapon, right? You see this in movies all the time. Good guy's a weapon, comes around the corner, bad guy ran out of bullets or whatever, and they need that 20-minute that 20 minute uh you know, showstopper scene at the end so that people feel like they got their money's worth when they bought their ticket kind of thing. Right. Um So, you know, the bad guy says, Oh, you know, show me your man or whatever. And then the good guy like tosses his own weapon away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, <laughs> but anyway, um, I, I would I would take this farther, right? When I think about this stuff, even if you have a weapon, you must be able to use your weapon. Right? Hatsumi Sinsei also taught along the way, I can't remember when, but there was this there was this phrase and I I just chewed on this for a long time because it sounded like double talk in the beginning, uh, and for a long time, right? Like you just said the same thing twice. And then I got it. He didn't, right? He also said if you cannot do what you cannot do when you must, you will die. Right? Uh sensei It's okay. Uh sensei Um use these kind of things a lot where they um they remind people like you make you screw up. You screw this up, right? You die. Right? You, you have these, these, uh, dumb ideas. You know, sounds logical sitting around the, the table. Sounds logical standing around with your friends, yucking it up and, you know, but, but there's no combat experience and no one guiding with combat experience. All kinds of wild, fucked up answer or, you know, ideas pop out, right? Um, and that's how, that's how the universe calls the, um calls the stupid and i don't mean calls like c a l l s i mean c u l l s right calls right um james is on james can you pop yourself on there was it uh was it when was when did we have a conversation uh yesterday maybe when we were shooting the videos for um this week for the folks in the tactical um uh, tactical course um did we discuss uh or we, did we, we was that when we discussed that comedian um Brad Upton? It's an older guy and he talks about like when we were yes. growing up, you mm-hmm. know. Um if you were an idiot, if you made dumb mistakes or whatever, you didn't make it. <laughs> you didn't make it, right? The problem in today's world is everything changed and the psychology changed and now we protect the idiots, right? And now, not only have they grown up to make decisions, or pass laws, or whatever, but they've they've procreated, right? They've multiplied, right? And now we have all these problems because the idiots are surviving, right? That's that's not universal justice. But anyway, let's get back to this weapon thing. So let me tell you a story. Um, my wife and I like cruising. You, some those of you who follow a lot, probably. Uh, heard this several times and maybe just before I went on vacation, but this trip uh, we had four ports of call, right? One was just one of these private beaches that the uh, cruise companies have and whatnot. And it, it's just a beach, right? I mean, we could have just stayed on the ship and gotten sun that way and boat drinks and whatever, and not, you know, not fought the, uh, uh, the crowds and stuff, and, and that's what we chose to do. So, and, and that one didn't count. But the other ports of call were Grand Turk as a part of Turks and Caicos. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I think Victor's wife is from that area. Um, we went to uh, the Dominican Republic, and we went to uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico. Right, uh, first time in all three locations for both of us. Right. Um, and whenever we go to places like this, if we're going to get off the ship, sometimes we choose to walk around and just kind of, you know, see the sights. Um, But she and I are huge history buffs and culture buffs and things like that, right? If we're going to another country, if we're going to another culture, then we want to learn something more than just, <laughs> I saw a statue. It was bronze, right? Or... <laughs> it was dirty or it had a pigeon on it or whatever right and so um, that's what we did right so we we chose to go on these uh, excursions that uh, the the they were tours of historical landmarks and the tour guide typically covers culture and history and, and that that's what we did right so anyway um, uh it was in the Dominican Republic right um, worst excursion we went on ever in our entire career of doing any of these kind of things. Um, but it is what it is, right? Still learned a lot. Um, but this is where this incident occurred. And, uh, the tour guide was taking questions. We're still on the bus, taking questions. And one person had noticed that there were, there were what looked like police officers. Uh, out there, but they had very, very different uniforms on. Right? They didn't look like security. They looked like police officers. And so, are they? Are they not? What? What's up? Right? Or are they just security or whatever? Well, it turns out that the Dominican Republic is is really trying to make a serious shift toward um, uh, advancing tourism more. And so they want to make sure that tourists are both protected, but also when these tour groups are going around that they just have an easier time getting from point A to point B and, uh, and just a whole bunch of things, right? So they gave them a really creative name, tourism police. To me, that sounds like you're going to police up to drunken tourists, but that's, that's just me, right? But anyway, uh, so we saw a couple along the way and whatnot and, um, for those of you who know me, right? You know that, uh, I have a difficult time not paying attention to things. Okay. Uh, something's going on and, you know, people will say, man, you know what I do? I just ignore it. No, because that's when shit happens. Right. So anyway, um, at one point in this walking portion of the tour, uh, we're in the city center and, um, we had to cross a, a major intersection, cobblestone streets and all that had to cross this intersection. And so there was one of these tourism cops uh, that stepped out to, you know, stop traffic, direct things, um, you know, whatever. Right. And um I'm not going to say that I wasn't a little bit turned off because the uniform wasn't as sharp as, you know, I came to, be trained to wear or whatever, but, um, my wife calls them cop eyes, but when I, when I tend to look at something, I tend to scan either from, from ground level up or from head to toe, whatever. And, um, so I'm looking over, I'm looking at them, I'm looking at the uniform and I hit their belt line and I, you know, cause one of my first questions unspoken until I realized I was doing it was. Are these guys full cops? Right. Are they are they armed? Are they you know, whatever? Right. Or are they just crossing guards? Right. Well, sure enough. Right. Armed. Holster was in fairly decent shape and whatnot. But. It took me a second or two to recognize what sidearm he was carrying because his pistol. Right. And I don't mean revolver. I mean, pistol. Right. Right. Um, was almost the same color of as the brown uh, holster he was carrying it in, and I don't mean the grips because the front end of the slide and the muzzle, you know, sight post and all that were. It was an open ended holster, so that part was extended out. Okay, um, it was that rusted and pitted and corroded. It was horrific. Okay, so you know, my mind immediately goes to these things, and it it you know took a couple of days of stewing this stuff over and whatnot, and not thinking about like how I was going to teach or whatever. But until I got to this point where like, th- this is this has got to be a topic that we talk about. But like, there there were three things in a very short amount of time that day that. Hit me. And when I say short amount of time, I mean like within minutes. First of all, and maybe it was four, but first of all, um, not not professional looking at all. Okay, And while I get it, it's not fair to judge a book by its cover. You know, they're not in the U.S. They don't have all the money. Look, regardless of what anybody thinks is fair, The human mind is wired to look at certain things a certain way, and you don't need to be taught, trained, or conditioned for that to be so, right? If you see a business person wearing a T-shirt and jeans and maybe some loafers, standing next to another one wearing a three-piece suit and shine shoes, you will make a judgment call whether you want to or not, without knowing which one makes more money, which one's more successful. It just works that way, right? So having a weapon in that kind of condition, one, makes somebody look unprofessional. Two, it makes them look unprepared, right? And three, no bad guy is going to take them seriously. It's kind of like a cop that can't maintain eye contact. There's a couple of them around here. When I meet somebody, I hold eye contact for four to six seconds. When I'm saying, hi, how are you? Whatever. I don't break eye contact, that kind of thing. And we've got a couple of cops around here that they'll answer you, but they break eye contact almost immediately. I would bet that those police officers have more problems dealing with people or perpetrators who won't take them seriously when they are trying to do their job because – that's a sign of weakness. Right. It, it's not a sign of authority or command or uh, or even confidence. Right. So but here's this weapon. Right. So first thing and, and, that, and actually what I just named first was on the tail end of everything else because survival was up front. OK. My first thought was, does that damn thing even work? Is it loaded? Right. Or is it just a frickin' decoration? Right. Is it just a piece of the uniform? But then the second thing that popped into my head was. Whether it is or isn't. There's a reliability issue here. So if this person needs to save somebody's life. Will the weapon work? Will the weapon service them? And the third thing that hit me was with the condition that was in. I feared for the cop's life because if he pulled the trigger, there was a high likelihood that that weapon would explode in his hand. Because a bullet that jams in in a, uh, in, a in a barrel, right? Um, if it's a if it's a hot round, and I don't mean like one that's undercharged or whatever, because there's often flaws that that come from the factory where the explosion's not enough to project the bullet through the barrel. Right? The next problem would be firing it again, and then you gotta, you basically have a pipe bomb in your hand. Right? But, if this is a hot round, it's a, it's perfectly serviceable, and it should fire it out of there, but the barrel is too constricted because of pitting, rust, corrosion, all kinds of stuff. Right? Again, you still have a pipe bomb. Right? It's a, and it's a pistol, and not a revolver, so there's not an open chamber. Okay? and with that i wasn't even sure that the that the slide mechanism worked anything like that there wasn't a hint of oil it looked as dry as the sand on the beach right just not cool and if it's been that way for a while then the metal itself is compromised right because it's it's weaker anyway so um so that's that's where that's where tonight's topic got its start right just this just this this condition of this weapon especially on somebody who may need to rely on it. Right? But we're no different. Especially if especially if you're like me. Right? If you are like we can use the word warrior or whatever, but I'm talking like protector minded. Right? Where you do what you do because you know that there is evil in the world. You know that there is there's that possibility slash probability based on where you live or if you travel or whatever, that it can touch you or it can come at somebody that you care about and you might need to step in. Right. So that's not an option. I mean, I say that self-protection is not uh it's not a right. It's not. Uh, an option. It's not a luxury. Right. It's a responsibility. Okay? Especially in today's world. Right. So. Um, you know. the That led to the title. Right. What what condition are your weapons in? Okay? But again, like I said, I want to cover this from from four different angles. I've already done one here, just kind of sharing this story and how it kind of set up, because um that that like I can't get that image out of my head right this this weapon in this person's holster in this cop's holster look like something that you would find in a box in the basement of your grandparents' home after they passed away and you don't know how the hell long it's been it's been there I mean, if, even if you polished it up and whatnot, if I polished that something, something like that up, um, I still wouldn't trust it. Even if I cleaned it, because again, I wouldn't know the integrity of the metal, um, it would go in a case maybe as an heirloom or it would be a paperweight because it's just, it, I mean, it was that, it was that bad. Okay. And for any of you, any of you know, understand uh, what I'm talking about when it comes to firearms, then, then you get it, right? Um, but anyway, so I've got three three other kind of perspectives to go with this um obviously, we're gonna do what I normally do and lead from the omulte to the oda, the obvious to the maybe not so obvious um maybe even hidden right, Uta. uh but before that, um we've got a i don't know a handful of people that are actually showing up on the screen uh as far as number count that I can see um but james we have, who who do we have who's who's signed in for? say our, our highs and early goodbyes if they have to leave early or whatever.
1: <laughs> uh, the only one showing is Jared and Dave. So good evening and howdy. Awesome. And Chris McLaurin just asked, are there weapons issued to them?
0: No idea. Because from my experience, if things are issued and uh whatnot, then you are absolutely responsible for upkeep and whatnot. But um I would venture again, this is an assumption, that um I would venture to guess that there is not what we used to call guard mount inspection before you go on duty, that kind of thing. A lot of civilian law enforcement um uh, agencies don't do this uh unless they're unless they're they're like the trainer, the training officer with a rookie kind of thing. Right. Uh, but after a certain point, it's just not done. Uh, when I was a military cop, let's say we were working 12 hour shifts, which was not uncommon. Right. Um, my, I think my first duty station was the only duty station where we worked eight hours, but that eight hours was actually closer to nine or 10. Okay. Um, when I worked at Fort Bragg, um, there was a, there was an area on Fort Bragg where most of the clerks and uh, whatever were, it was called Coscom, right? Uh, it was a support command kind of area. Uh, the crime rate in Coscom was the same as any big city. And it was basically the size of a small town. So um, when I say that, um, uh, Eighty percent of the people that I ever arrested were trained killers, I'm not kidding right? um, but they were easily we had twelve hour shifts on a regular basis, and sometimes we were supposed to be um like a week on days, a week on nights, a week off um uh, but that week off wasn't really a week off that's when we did soldiering and whatnot so we were supposed to uh, do field training we were supposed to do army stuff right it we was supposed to be you know glorified grunts um, or we did other training like uh you know when I went to counterterrorism school and stuff like that um, but because we were so shorthanded and because Fort Bragg is one of those uh, duty stations where uh, the the slogan when I was in was first in last out right so. If something was hot in an area in the world, well, a third to half of the, of the, the post was gone. And that also meant that at least one, if not more MP companies were gone as well. Cause wherever the soldiers go, the MP corps goes, right? Just like the medics go, right? So, um, but, uh, more often than not, we were working three, four weeks straight on the same shift, no days off. Okay. So I I laugh whenever people go, it's not fair, man, you know how many hours I've worked. Um, I, I own my own businesses. You know how many hours I work? Not many. And it's not because I don't work. I do something I love. So um when I have to do the books, that's why I hired Aaron. So um Erin can do the books. She's weird. She likes doing books. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, so 12-hour shifts, right? So uh, two hours before, we had to report for duty, and we stood in formation, and the uh, duty officer or duty NCO for that shift would walk the line and check your uniform, check your weapon, whatever, right? haircut, all that, because we had to be walking talking examples of the UCMJ, the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Uh, for those of you who were in the military and you know what I'm talking about, that's the that's the law for the for the military. Um, and then once that was done and you didn't get booted out to go like shave again or whatever, um then you were assigned your patrol route and then from there, you made your way over to the to the uh, motor pool that we used that kept our our sedans and our patrol vehicles, right? And so you had to check out your vehicle and make sure that it was all sound. You did an inspection on that, and then um, if all that worked out, you signed the vehicle out. You made your way to the NP station, and then then for twenty minutes to a half an hour. You sat in a room with the off-going shift, or at least most of them because some people were still out because you couldn't leave the, the streets completely uncovered, right? But uh, ongoing shift and off-going shift are in the same room, and you're doing uh, briefing, debriefing, right? So they're letting you know what occurred during the previous shift, what cases are still open, what needs to be done, uh, bolos often, uh, bolos mean be on the lookout, often called APBs, all points bulletins, depending on the police department, whatever. So there's a whole bunch of stuff, right? Um, based on the look of this guy, if it's done, then again, I'm gonna make another assumption. I don't like making assumptions, but I have to make another assumption that they're all dressed that way. But I would prefer to make the assumption that they don't, they didn't go through that process. They just show up for work and, Whatever, right? So, Chris, I don't know. Okay? Anyway, um, so yeah, I'm showing like almost a dozen number-wise on, yeah. Um, but only two or three people have signed in. Is that what you're saying? Right. Okay. Fine. That's fine. okay. So, um, the the big obvious part about this, right, is are your weapons? And this I'm not just talking about guns, right? Your hanbo, your long staff, your knife, whatever you have, right? Um are they serviced? That means do you do you check on them or has it is it in a drawer somewhere, right? Or does it only come out every once in a while when you need to open a box or whatever, right? Is it serviced? Is it oiled? Is it clean? right? If it's a knife, do you run a sharpening stone over a stone over it every once in a while to make sure that the, the edge is what it's supposed to be, right? Um, you know, if it's a hanbo, long staff, whatever, uh, especially if it's one that you use or plan to use consistently for training, if not for self-defense. Do you check it every once in a while for, um, for cracks or splits or uh, whatever, right? But the point there is, is it reliable? Right. But the the other question is, is it does it have a sense of quality to it? Right. Um, not that not that we're not adept at just picking up anything. Right. I mean, I've got this. Uh, do I have it? Yeah. I've got one of these for those of you on audio only. You can't see this, but I've got one of these circle uh, water bottles. Right. That. Um, has a little bit of a flavor profile or whatever. So I've got all these boxes of uh, the, the replacement cartridges laying around, right? Anything, right? We're, we're, we should be right. Unless somebody is so <laughs> what they would consider to be traditional or purist or whatever that, um, I don't know, I guess they're more samurai minded than, than ninja minded, but um, anything that we have around right or remote or whatever even my um uh, my my jizu for my uh my mickey stuff right um, now I understand what it's for in that context, but it's also a sorry fundo, so right it is it is what it is right it is what I need to be in the moment
1: right
0: um, I get that, but if it's a primary weapon if it's a primary training tool. Right. Is it the best quality that we can afford? And do we maintain that quality? Later on, I'll be talking about less visible things. But, you know, our mind is the is the 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 best, most important weapon that a ninja possesses. When I ask people, when I ask students, you know, what's a ninja's number one weapon? Everybody goes to sword or. You know, throwing star or whatever. It's your brain. Okay. Developed for problem solving, troubleshooting, uh, adaptability, and survival. Right. Uh, but hopefully, we're not like, I don't know, James, how often do we get an email from somebody that if they don't say it outright, you just pick up on the the mentality of martial arts is my life, right? And it just you know there's it's not a whole lot of aptitude there, let alone uh, attitude, right? And the Chinese have a saying that the way you do anything is probably a good sign as to the way you do everything, if not most things, right? And you know Forrest Gump said. Stupid is as stupid does. Lazy is as lazy does. He didn't say lazy is as lazy does. You can just replace things. Right. So anyway, um, the, the, the obvious question is, right, is, is it is it in the shape that it needs to be in to serve you when you need it? Okay, I'll give you I'll give you an example of when it isn't. But there's a huge sense of false confidence that leads the way uh it was a seminar it was a seminar- no it was a, it was a multi week course that I did uh I did a sword course, an introductory sword course um I don't always do like a day workshop or a weekend or something like that. often I'll do a six week or a four week or whatever so because I understand that a lot of people based on job or life or whatever right. Um, they can't swing a whole weekend or they can't swing a multi-day thing or whatever, but they could do a class a week. It's typically the way I do a lot of the online training, right? Um, So like we just got through the, would we just do this uh, first seven steps on the path of a Buddha, right? Um, 17 weeks, right? One class a week for 17 weeks. So, um, but it was a sword course and uh, everyone was required to have uh, a boken, obviously, right? And I even kind of explained how they could make a, uh, a makeshift sheath and whatnot for when we were doing uh, bato jutsu, iaido, for those of you who know that. Um, but that was mandatory. They had to have that. Um, optionally, right? We have some in the dojo, but you know how do you train outside the dojo if you don't have your own training if you don't have your own stuff right um you know so um but they could have had an yaito, right um a training version right so uh i think in that one because it was an introductory course uh we didn't i think we did cutting one class and we just had you know people brought Swords in and we had some and whatnot. So those who didn't have no harm, no foul, just arrange with somebody, borrow theirs and don't be stupid. Um, But um, we had somebody that that was a good woodworker and they decided they weren't spending the money on a bogan. They could just make their own. They had wood at home and whatever. Fantastic. Right. So uh um, brought these things in or he brought his in i think i, I don't think he made for anything for anybody else, but he brought it in and uh he uh I was very proud of this thing and it was it was nice right he he did a good job shape and all that but I'm looking at the at the grain
1: i'm
0: like you want to be careful with that okay don't don't apply too much pressure with it because um he didn't take the grain the grain lines right into account when he traced out his his shape to make, right? Um, when, when you're working with, with weapons and things that need to be pressure tested and whatnot, um, the grain should run lengthwise on the weapon, whether it's a long staff or a hanbo or a boken or whatever, it should run from end to end, not across, because those are weak points, right? And um, he said he pressure tested it, but I can't believe it because – um, we did, like, the first technique. We did, uh, off of a cut, we did just the, uh, Jodan Uke, right? Just the receiving parry kind of thing. And, um we weren't even doing anything hard and fast. Like, his sword, his boken, tapped the other person's boken, and split in two. And it was a clean, it was a, it just surprised the crap out of him. And he said, well, 12 hours of my life or whatever it was, that I'm not getting back. And I'm not, I'm never, ever, ever the teacher to look at somebody, or even with my kids, never the person to look at somebody and say, see, I told you so. You don't need me to say that. You know I said it. I know I said it. I don't need to say, see, I told you so. That's, that's not necessary, okay? And certainly people that are, um, that are confident and and don't need to gloat and don't need to put other people down and whatnot, don't say things like that, right? You and I both know, okay? Um, and I also see it as a lesson learned, okay? But um, that's what I mean, right? Quality, right? Because it has to serve us, okay? So while we're on this topic, or while on the subject of training weapons that's actually the second perspective I want to go into right the first half of this was about having to use it under pressure right will it be reliable okay but this little segue story leads to the second part right um and that is when When people bring uh training weapons to seminars uh, especially if they're they're you know outsiders or whatever um and especially those have been training for a while okay? and I get it if you've been training for a while and this is your first experience with we're doing long staff we're doing sword whatever right, and you have to have a boken or you have to have a, a rope oaksho bow or you have to have a hanbo, Joe, whatever right training knife right um if you're brand new at it, I get it. Everything has been very controlled, soft training, that kind of thing, because mechanics trumps everything else. Right? Because you have no business pressure testing things, or going at speed, or you know, stroking ego, or whatever. Right? Um, without the new skills that you want to be working because once you cross a certain speed or a certain pressure threshold, left brain shuts down and whatever is top of mind or loaded into subconscious storehouse, this is psychology, not my belief system. Whatever's most in subconscious storehouse is what's going to come out, which is why uh, people look a certain way when they're doing techniques. But when they do Rondori, they do free sparring. It starts to look like every other fighting system they've ever seen or done. Right? It stops looking like what they've been learning. They're not ready for it yet. Right. They need to build up that speed and that pressure incrementally. I know what ego wants. Mine wanted that once, too. Right. But that's not the way it works. It's not about fairness. It's not about anything. The number of people that go through this art. Repeating certain terms that are true, they're the principles we operate by. The things that Sensei says, or the other Japanese master teachers, or whatever, right? About things being natural, and about it being about nature, or whatever, right? The number of people who do that, but operate in opposition to nature and natural, right? Because ego wants what ego wants, you know, like the heart wants what the heart wants. Yeah, well, there's a reason we have an intellect too, to make sure the heart doesn't do dumbass things. My brother's in prison because he didn't use his intellect, right? So for those of you who didn't know that about me, well, not about me, about family things, but here's what it is, right? And that's the first thing you heard from me. I don't give a shit what your heart said, right? We have an intellect for a reason, right? We also have a heart for a reason so that you don't live a cold, antisocial, sociopathic life as well. Right. That's why both our Budo and the Mikyo training have those in equal amounts. Right. So anyway. Um, If somebody's been around for a while and they've been they've been, you know, training, this is not their first rodeo with that particular type of uh, weapon training or whatever. Right. Um, I look at the weapon. Okay. And I'm not just looking at quality. Okay? It depends on what we're working on. I want to make sure they're not going to snap that thing. They're not going to hurt themselves or somebody else. whatever. But that's not the first thing I look at. What's the first thing I look at, James? <clears throat> Let's say it's a wooden weapon. What's the first thing I look at? He hates being put on the spot, but he knows the answer. What would you look at?
1: With them, well, I'd say like how they're holding, like how they're, yeah, like holding the weapon. Are they treating it as a weapon, or is they just as a th- Yeah, I'm not talking
0: about them at the moment. I'm talking yeah. about the weapon itself. When I look at the weapon, what am I looking for? I'm looking for dings. Oh, uh,
1: training scars.
0: I'm looking for training scars. Okay. No training scars tells me one of two things. They've only done soft training. Their technique hasn't been uh, pressure tested. They have no idea what happens in their bones, in their joints, or whatever, if their grip is wrong when they hit something, even at half speed, half pressure. Like with with a long staff, Hanbo, whatever. You hold that thing wrong when you come in for a strike and blow this joint, this thumb joint right out. Okay. And people make, you know, they they adjust around these things. Why hold it this way? Because this way doesn't work for me. I bet not. Okay. You don't know how to hold it. And either nobody covered that or they did. But I'm going to do it my way because this is how I like it. Well, tough feeding yourself. If you can't hold a spoon any other way than between like the sides of two fingers or hold it like a <laughs> whatever anyway. So, uh, but I look for training scars huh? because it's either that where they've only ever done soft training or they have they don't train. What do I call a, a, a training weapon with no battle scars?
1: Decoration.
0: A decoration. It's decoration, right? You know how much I spent on that? I didn't, well, then get something that's less expensive so that you can work with it. I had a student once that uh, was in the market to get uh, a good sword, right? Want to get a sharp sword and everything? And I said, man, look, get yourself like uh, – you can still find these things, but um, uh, they're going to be secondhand or whatever because I think Paul Chen – either went out of business or sold their operation to somebody else and whatever so but uh Paul Chen swords at the time they had a practical katana cost you two three hundred bucks right you get it on sale two two fifty whatever really good weighted balanced you could buy it with the length of the tsuka that you needed right for classical work right um because the the, the length of the the handle the tsuka right um, is such, because remember, we're, we're working with stuff that was pre Tokugawa era. During the Tokugawa era, that's where all the shit that you buy in martial arts supply places that are stamped out, the length of that handle, that's, that sword is based on Tokugawa measurements. Well, those people were all short, okay, but their sword measurements were what was enforced during the hundred years of peace. You couldn't use what your family and clan had used for a thousand years. You had to switch over, right? Well, well, that's not fair. Sure it was. Who was in charge? The Tokugawas, right? It was easier for them to enforce peace and have the advantage in a sword fight against somebody who was skilled if that person couldn't use the sword style that they were trained on. They had to use this, th- but the Tokugawa's were using the sword style, shape, and all that, that their clan had used for how long? Okay? That's how you, right? It's just like the Gracie's with jiu-jitsu, right? Brazilian jiu-jitsu. When the UFC was created, the rules that were established, and there were only three way back in UFC, one through three, four, maybe, whatever. Um, they were the ones that the Gracie's couldn't defend against, Okay, How ninja-like. We're just going to set this up in a way that all the rules lean in our favor. And everybody else who wanted to fight, well, you just had to abide by those rules. So I just think it was, I liked the rules way back then, right? Because one of the rules was if you broke a rule, right, you got fined a $1,000. Okay, The check for the tournament was $25,000. And then you couldn't kick somebody in the groin, you couldn't stab them in the eye, and you couldn't bite them. I'm taking home $22,000. So you weren't disqualified. You weren't kicked out. You just got fined because it was a frickin' fight, right? So you you get the math, right? I'm taking home $22,000 because somebody's getting bitten, somebody's losing an eye, and somebody's getting getting a lump in their throat they used to piss out of, Okay, Give me my $22,000, and I'm going home, Okay. They've got a lot to work with off $25,000. Right. So, anyway, um, that's just the way I think. You, can, <laughs> you don't have to do what I do. <laughs> I'm also not getting involved in fights like that because I'm not willing to do that kind of damage to another person for money or a trophy or an ego stroke.
1: Right.
0: Now, if you're coming at my family or you're threatening to remove me out of the world so I can't protect my family, yeah, now all bets are off. See, that's the difference in the thinking. But anyway, um, so anyway, back to uh, uh, the student that I had, uh, you know, I'm like, you know, get one of these things. Uh, I, I know it's a little bit pricey, but j- just do yourself a favor. I mean, we have we have the Asian world and century martial arts, uh, Yaito and, and things like that in the dojo because they're beavers. I mean the handles aren't wrapped anymore. <laughs> the, the, the plastic grips are splitting, and we have them fricking electrical taped together. And um, people have made mistakes with things, and so the the unsharpened edges look like they've been whittled into, and stuff like that, right? And because they're beaters, right? But he wanted something that he could practice cutting. He could, you know, and it was a, it was a good sword. And I said, look, you're gonna make some mistakes. Is your first sword, you're just getting started, you're, just get, do yourself a favor, man. Um, he just wouldn't listen, right? Went and bought himself a, I don't know, somewhere between eight and twelve hundred dollar sword. It was, it was pretty freaking expensive, right? First time he had it. He came in the next time, uh, told me what I tell you,
1: right? Well,
0: please remind me, right? Brought the sword in. Drew it from a sheath right down there at the boshi, right that little curve part right there, there was a crescent it was a half circle chipped out of the kisaki, chipped out of the edge. here he made himself a sword stand, and accuracy's not there yet, right, and so he had this this uh metal bar or something just that held the the uh, tatami amote, right? The rolled tatami skin, right? That's used for cutting. Bit into it way too low and hit that. It's like a 16 penny nail, 20 penny nail, something like that. I'm talking about It's bar like, but big enough that it could just hold this thing. So if your cut was off, it would just bat it off or whatever. So it, you know, it's very fragile, just like a moving body part. Right. And sure enough, First first time out with it. And it's it couldn't be fixed. It was that big. See start at quality but knowing if I make a mistake with this, it's gonna hurt, but it's not I mean it's expected because right, it's just like knowing in the beginning you were training, right? You're gonna be bruised. Right. Your your Ukemi are not going to be what you dream of because you're doing it yourself. Right. Because it's not just about being able to do a break fall. It's about being able to have your body in the right position in time relative to the ground when he's doing the work. Right. Um, James, you're at the dojo tonight. I, I just tested somebody who was in mod five going to the second level in mod five. Uh, so he's, what, four months out from his Shodan test. And, um, uh, one of the points he made, cause I asked him what three things he thinks he needs to work on, uh, to be ready, to be ready and confident for a Shodan test. And one of those things was to not be preempting, uh, his ukemi, right? Because what he often finds is that he guesses incorrectly with regard to direction, angle, those kind of things. He just, he jumps ahead and the other person's not finished with the technique. Right. And so he ends up thumping, right? Okay. Uh, I you're always great when you're doing it on your own because you are choosing everything. And one of the things that I, I asked him was what's the difference? Because a lot of the things that we do are exactly the same thing that gymnasts do. A lot of things that we do, people think are the same as gymnasts do, we just don't have to be that crisp and that perfect with it because we're not being scored, right? What matters is that you didn't get broken. be? receiving body, right? And so I said, what's the difference between a gymnast, let's just say a role. What's the difference between a gymnast doing a role and us doing a role? What's the primary difference? It's not direction. It's not speed, right? Primary difference is that a gymnast chooses the timing of their role. They they do it at the speed that they're good at, right? And if they're doing a floor routine in, say, uh, a meet or the Olympics or whatever, um, they choose, and then they do it by to music, if you've ever seen these things. Um, they do it to music, and so they have the luxury of matching up their acrobatics, their gymnastic skills to the music or the music to the skills, right? So a, a lot of these folks, right? If you've ever watched any of these, any of these, uh, these tournaments or meets or competitions or whatever, um, the music changes tempo more often than not, right? And so that gives them the opportunity to, to put the things that they do really, really, really well. Like they've got dead bang, right? in the music when it's fast because they can do that thing quickly. But let's say there's a skill that mm, they're not so good at or whatever, and they need a little bit more time with, right? They'll get scored, they still get scored highly and whatnot. They just tuck that into the routine when the tempo of the music slows down. So the rhythm matches. Okay. But either way, they dictate time, direction, um, intensity, height, distance, all kinds of things, right? Who dictates ours? The attacker. Because the one thing you need for ukemi to be ukemi, right, a breakfall to be a breakfall, is you need to be falling, right? You need to be thrown, crashing, whatever. Otherwise, it's not ukemi, okay? So... Um, anyway, uh, so again, it's it's this this idea of you know is it is it really a training tool or is it a decoration? What conditions your weapon in? Huh? Anyway, uh, we have any questions or comments on anything I just covered there, James, or up to this point?
1: Uh, Chris said he learned that the hard way. With his bow and a tree in the backyard, hmm
0: yeah um i uh the first uhkilokosushoge uh that I ever bought um I bought it from the the classified section of i don't know one of those martial arts magazines, right you know the ones where they lied and said these were designed by and approved by Stephen Hayes because he was the you know guy who brought the stuff back from japan and Whatever. Um yeah, anyway, a lot of those places got sued by him too, by by the way. But anyway, um yeah, this was um this was the blade was cast aluminum. You know what that means? I mean it was aluminum to begin with, right? But you know what cast is? Cast stuff is brittle. It's poured into a right a lot of uh cheaper made tools. In today's world are that way, right? And if they don't break or chip, um they'll the 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 let's say it's a wrench or whatever, right? Um instead of stripping the head of a cheap bolt or screw, the head of the screw or the bolt deforms the the socket shape kind of thing, right? Um it's it's that kind of thing, right? But um cast things more often than not uh break. Okay. Um so Anyway, uh I was working with the cord and the rope and all that kind of stuff, and I was moving around, and there was this tree, okay? and I stabbed the tree, and I felt and heard this high-pitched, ding, I'll say it again, ding, <laughs> and I'm like, what how's that? And I looked down, and like the tip of the shouge, the the main blade, right? was missing. And I was looking at the, it's not even grain because the stuff is poured, right? Cast stuff is molten and poured. Right. Um, I was looking at the edge of this thing. And so um, the tip of my first Kyokutsu Shoge, and I still have it. It's in the dojo. I show it off on a regular basis. Right. James, you know what I'm talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I show it off on a regular basis, right? If you buy cheap shit, know that it's cheap shit. And use it gingerly because it you, you can work at mechanics, you can work with a little bit of pressure, but right. Um but the tip of that training tool is in a tree in Wetzlar, Germany, what used to be West Germany. And I'm sure at this point, because that was in 1986, 1987, um if that tree is still standing. And it wasn't turned into firewood. Um, it's many rings (laughs) inside that tree because the tree will just grow around it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I, I get it, right? And well, if you're, if you're doing serious training, you will have war stories like this ulna rebuilt itself because, uh, early in my days in Nidatsu, I tried going a little too fast, um, for, where the skill set was and off of a rising shin kick to my groin, I shifted. And because of the speed and the fact that it surprised me, muscle memory tossed out an answer that was incorrect. It was a low block from my karate days. And I ended up with a green stick fracture. And if you know what a green stick fracture is, um, then you know that the X-ray of the two ends of the bone and how flared they are looks like somebody put a firecracker inside your bone and set it off. It's not a clean break, right? Um, so that was a that was a happy happy time. <laughs> anyway, I say that smiling now, but anyway, um, so yeah, just that's that's part two any anything else from anybody else?
1: <clears throat> Dave just said, uh, my favorite Bokan is made of iron wood, jet black with blonde accents. It's hard with good weight, it is gorgeous. See it's like a
0: woman who's trained with a gun, beautiful and deadly at the same time. Well I mean that's like katana are what they are, right, right. They're both killing weapons and works of art. Especially the ones that are, you know, made that way. Quality. Anyway, all right. So, um, third perspective. We have to remember that our kumai, our fists, our kicks, our techniques—they're weapons too. Okay, we can't. You know, we're slipping over to the Oda side, right? Slipping over to the dark side. Okay, so it's not just you know weapons or weapons or weapons. Okay. Right? Um, one of the confusing things for a lot of my students uh, as they enter the mid to upper intermediate phases is when we shift the lesson from Kamae being positions of safety and defensive mechanisms, more shield than anything else, especially for the black belts. Where taking up a Kamai, even the ones that we typically would call defensive, right, Seon, Bobi, um, Doko, Hoko, Hira, Shizen, whatever, right, um, that taking up that Kamai is an attack because the Kamai is a weapon, right, and we don't have to be touching their body. This is not about making contact with, with their physical body, right? We're attacking their sensibilities. We're attac- attacking their perceptions, right? We're attacking their awareness. We're attacking their decision-making skills, right? Um, we're attacking their heart. Okay, right? so their weapons as well. Okay, so what condition are they in? Right? Are they, are they reliable? And please note that there's a huge difference between believing that somebody something is reliable and knowing that it's reliable. I have have students every once in a while that come to me, whether it's seminars or online programs or whatever, um, that will say, in some form, right? I mean, the wording is not always the same. And I'm paraphrasing that um, I didn't get those lessons. Okay. Now you can't say that ever again. (laughs) Okay. And there's a difference between not getting it and not remembering that you got it as well. Right. Um, But where were you in the in the process? Where was the person who was training you, teacher, friend, whatever, in their training process? They didn't get it. You didn't get it. OK, other people. Right. Um, I remember a test that I ran a bunch of years ago. I brought in so many black belts from outside the area. Um, I live in East Central Pennsylvania. And I had black belt friends come in to sit on that testing board that were from Virginia, that were from, uh, Toronto, Ontario, Canada and surrounding areas, upstate New York, all kinds of stuff that, that testing board made people want to throw up. Okay. Um, and we're moving through the, the testing and whatnot. And, and my friend Cordelia is sitting to my left and. Uh, we asked these folks to show us uh, a certain breakfall, a certain ukemi. It was a Shodan test, so they could do it on their own. And uh, (laughs) three out of the four people's eyes glazed over like they didn't know what we were talking about. And one of them was brave enough to say, I don't think we were ever taught that. And Sensei Elliot leaned forward and said, "Do you forget that I know who your teacher is? Right? That's not possible.
1: Right?
0: No, I'm pretty sure we hadn't learned it. Well, that changed the course of that test for a little while. I, I get over myself after I help them remember the breakfall. It's amazing how much it was." in muscle memory but wasn't in left brain so often we can not remember that we learned something because of stress or because of time or whatever but if we practice correctly it's in muscle memory it'll come out okay one way or the other hopefully (laughs) yeah Yeah. anyway that was was a memorable test anyway i like when people want to know they they go around to people that that had tested before and they want to know what the test is like so they can they can let the control freak in themselves, right? Absolutely prepare for that test and no two tests that I've ever done are alike because there needs to be an element of uncertainty. I'm not just testing the skills. I'm testing how far it is in muscle memory. And I'm also presenting an environment that's very much like the, uh, the chaos, uncertainty, Nervous anxiety and whatnot that's going to be happening on the street. How do I know that? Uh, I don't know. Experience. So, anyway. All right. So, kumai. Are they being pressure tested? Fist, kicks. kicks. It's easy to see fist and kicks uh, as weapons because we we see that, right? And a strike. Well, of course it's a weapon, right? But kumai. That one throws people a lot because a lot of people still frame kumai Right, these postures, these attitudes, they still have them framed in their head. Remember way back at the beginning of this this uh episode, um, I did that mathematical mathematical equation, self-defense equals fighting. Yeah. If I were to do it again with come I, it would it would be written out, come I equals stances. Right? And there's a huge difference between both of those things. Kumai have stance like qualities, but stances are not Necessarily kumai. I'll put that little soft caveat in there because I'm not going to split hairs with people. Okay? They're they're named the names of stances are named for parts of the body that are different than kumai. And I'm not just talking about the name. I'm talking about kumai are named uh, stances are named for the for the position of the body from the waist down and uh kumai are named for the upper part of the body, specifically the limbs, and in ninpo, um, there that goes beyond that, and it points to the three bodies, right? And it's not correct in Japanese or even in Asian martial arts to say body, mind, and spirit. It doesn't work that way. Okay? In the East, mind and spirit are the same, Kokuro. Right, So it's not the same, but either way. Right? So, um, But they're weapons. And until we understand that, and especially if we're only ever seeing them as stances, we'll never have the power in them that was passed down, that, that's inherent in them. Okay? We're always in Kamite. Every single moment of every single day, we're in a Kamai. On the omote side, that Kamai is a reflection of your inner world being acted out by the body. You have a, I'm bored as shit Kamai. You have an, I'm ecstatic Kamai. You have an, I'm here Kamai. You have, right? Um, On other sides, the ability to switch Kamai quickly... Right. Um, because, you know, that they're internal and your body's a reflection of that inner world, whether it's the psychological strategy or the it's the emotional intent or resolve or whatever. Right? Um, that's different. But once we understand that there's a difference between those three bodies. Then we can really then apply. And understand the difference between the two sides. Kokoro no kamai, kamai, the heart, right? So it's going on the inside, right? It's like wearing your heart on your sleeve, right? So this is a reflection of my intent. Here you go, buddy. This is exactly, right, what I want you to understand. And then the opposite side of that, the Ura side, is kage no kamai, right? Shadow kamai. What you see physically is not what's going on in my head and my heart. And you don't get to see that or experience that until we come to grips. Okay, so I'm, it's the tank on My external kumai gives you the information you need to make decisions, but that's, that's not it. My external body and the shape of it gives you the information I want you to have to make the decisions I want you to make. That creates your downfall. Because it'll all be wrong. Right? This is not adolescent teenager trickery. Right? It's not the same. Anyway. All right. So that was number three. And number four, I'm going to touch on this very, very lightly uh before we take questions and wrap this up, um, because this is the sensitive part for a lot of folks. Okay. We're going beyond UTA. Okay. Um I mean it's still oda, but it's this is so oda that it steps outside of the realm of most people's conceptions about what they're training, what they're learning, and where the boundaries are right? and that's why it makes it even more invisible right it makes it even more hidden right because just like that equation, self-defense equals fighting, kamae equals stances, right? People have a perception about martial arts training. Because in all honesty, most people, I know this because I had to get over it myself, most people compartmentalize things, right? <coughs> Which is why they move one way in the dojo and move a completely other way and trip over their own two feet and stuff out and out then the street, okay, um, and that is that they believe that martial arts looks a certain way. They believe that Budo starts and stops at a certain point, right? and whether we're talking about ninpo or Budo purely or Budo includes ninpo, but just like those who went through the 37 Fundamentals course and through the First Seven Steps of the Path course, we talked about those three... Three schools, three primary schools of, uh, Buddhist thought, Mikyo, whatever, Mikyo being one of them, right? That that's actually part of, like, we'll call that number three, but it's a part of number two, but it's the approach to the training that sets it completely apart, right? So, the fourth perspective on the condition of your weapons, is uh, or points to and includes weapons like decision making, emotional control, anger management, whatever, right? Uh, finances, other skill sets for navigating the world and problem solving, those kind of things, right? Um, and again, not going to touch on those a whole lot, but I will kind of round that out. Um not just by saying that they're weapons, but this is a huge aspect, because I just mentioned Mikio this is a huge aspect in uh Mikio, especially from the Shingon uh school because there's two primary schools of of Mikio in japan um Shingon, which is if anybody's seen the mandala, those mandala that you're looking at that are that are primarily blue um their Shingon Mandala, the, the Tendai Mandala, the school that uh, I was initiated into. Uh, if you don't know what you're looking at and you just kind of look at it from a from a face value kind of thing, uh, with the exception of the Tendai Mandala being uh, red at their at their core. Right. Uh, because the Shingon Mandala, they're dark blue because it represents uh, the universal side of things, universal truth. All that. Not that all this stuff is not in Tendai as well, but it's from the outside in perspective, right? From the from the macrocosm to the microcosm, the Tendai mandala are red, way more red, because that represents human blood, represents life. So the perspective on the training is from the human out, from the microcosm to the macrocosm. It's just, it's a two-way street, right? Once you get it all, then doesn't matter which ones you're looking at. But anyway, um, just at surface value, the Taizukai Mandala, that's the one with the eight-petal lotus in the middle, and then everything kind of moves out. And, uh, they're supposed to be like concentric circles, but they're made in squares, in rectangles. Um, that, with the exception of the main color, most people,
1: they're
0: going to look at those and say, oh, Taizukai, Taizukai. It's the Kongokai that looks different, right? Most people are used to seeing the, that know what I'm talking about, are used to seeing a Kongokai Mandala that's made up of nine panels, Okay. that's Shingon in the Tendai it's just one square right uh, that looks like the lower si- any one of the lower six uh, well it's the, actually the middle of the lower six because that's the one where everything is in human form as opposed to visa, seed syllable uh, symbolic form offering form whatever um, and it's again it's because of the way the schools kind of relate to things but in Shingon, specifically, uh, uh, one of the one of the trees of Kukai, the founder of Shingon uh, Mikyo, Shingon Buddhism, the Shingon school, not even Buddhism, um, divided things up into 10 levels of advancement, 10 levels of achievement. Right. And I'm not going to go through all these things, but it's just like our Kuji. You have the nine and all of that, everything contained in all of those levels, fits into the context of what we would think of as that type of training. Spiritual training, Mikyo, whatever. Does so this make sense, James? You're, you're talking about, right? And I'm relating this to martial arts and the way most people think of martial arts.
1: Right?
0: But the 10th level of training is not. Is not within the scrolls or the teachings or whatever of that school directly, right? It's everything else out in the world, every other spiritual tradition, learning mathematics, science, you know, politics, human relationships, and all kinds of things that most people would not even think of as being under that purview because... You know, well, it's not in the curriculum, man. That's not what that's not what I would think of, right? I mean, art and all kinds of stuff, right? Um, but the idea is that no organization, no school, no path, whatever, holds a monopoly on truth or holds a monopoly on whatever, and it can't hold all the possible lessons all the possible contradictions or apparent contradictions that exist, right? The universe is too big for that. Life is too, um, too dynamic for that. Right? So it's, and Hatsumi says I use this term a lot in the early days. It's a return to zero. Right? It's because now you got to take those lessons and relate to things. And as a part of that 10th level of achievement, right? Um, you're also supposed to be reading and studying and looking at things that also include that which you don't agree with. Because you will find truth in the most unlikely places. And most people avoid things that don't match their idea of or perception or litmus test or whatever, right? If you don't believe me, go to any self-respecting self-defense or martial arts teachers, YouTube page, Facebook, whatever. And you look at the stuff and go, that's awesome stuff. That guy knows what he's talking about. That girl knows what she's talking about or whatever. And then just go down through the comments.
1: Okay.
0: You look at mine. Most common comments are what? I'm fat. I'm old and I'm bald. I look like Danny DeVito. I look like whatever. Okay. So since I don't pass their Image test, nothing that I'm teaching or nothing that I know can't possibly be right, so we have to be careful we're not doing this in other areas as well okay but when it comes to life right this is this is part of the koteki udoda uh lesson right this is uh from fotoyu yoko you that kind of thing right Koteki uh the tiger below, the dragon above. There's lots of ways to translate this because it's not really a sentence. Um the, the tiger realm is what most people perceive as being this training. Right? It's the battlefield stuff, it's the back alley, it's the combat stuff. Right? The Yoda, right? The dragon realm is success and fighting the challenges and demons and evil and whatnot that society throws at us that's not physical combat you know can you keep your lights on can you feed your kids can you um not let the assholes at work beat you down mentally and emotionally right that kind of stuff right it's not the same right i mean in principle it's the same because a challenge is a challenge an attack is an attack but the the admonition the lesson in Koteku Yoda is not just in separating these things. Just looking at Tiger Realm, Dragon Realm, the way I described it, is the way most people stop their translation and definition of the Omiodo, the yin-yang symbol, right? They, they stop at the at the training wheel laden, uh, you know, kid's bike or, or even worse than that, the tricycle or the wagon that you're being pulled in or whatever, right? It's just a super simple kind of thing. But the, the recognition in it is that both sides are necessary because if you take the skills from the opposite realm of training into its – into the opposite realm, right, into the, into the complementing opposite realm, right, if you take the tiger's skills, the battlefield skills into society – they're there to kill you. Or you're going to jail, right? Or you're either not going to have any friends, or all the friends that you have are, you know, just like you. Which might not be a bad thing, but I kind of like people that I can have like deep level conversations with, um, and not just like, hey man, like, how's your emotional no right? come? Well, I remember when, um, it's like old vets sitting around at a bar smoking cigarettes and sharing war stories about shit that may or may not have ever happened. Right. Um same thing. You take social skills, politeness, etiquette, negotiation skills, those kind of things, right? Onto a battlefield, you get killed. Right, okay. So it's way deeper than just the surface level Oh yeah, I learned what that means. Oh yeah, that means this. Oh, okay. But again, it's one thing to know it, it's another thing to live it. And so all of these things are weapons, because weapons, what are weapons? Well, from a ninja's perspective, a weapon is a tool, not just a weapon, which is what allows us to see weapons in almost anything. But what's a tool? A tool is something that can allow you to accomplish a task much more easily or to solve a problem much more quickly and cleanly, that kind of thing, right? So, again, communication skills, negotiation skills, uh maintaining, you know, relationships or knowing when to sever relationships, those kind of things. Right. Um Again, finances and, and all that. Right. They're all weapons. Okay? They're the things that we're going to use to. Uh, handle challenges, to stop threats from happening, to be able to. Navigate life more easily and more cleanly and to be able to accomplish things much more easily. You know, I truly do believe that the person who said that money never made uh, money never made anybody happy was poor. And two, um, if you're going to be unhappy, have as much money as possible. Because you're going to be unhappy in either realm. Okay. One person is just going to be a lot more unhappy because of all the shit they can't do. And to do good in the world, especially the way the world is built today. Money's a tool. The amount of good that I can do is in direct relationship to the amount of extra money that I can give away. Or go on cruises, (laughs) which is the same. Because and I, I, I learned this from Jack Hovind. So for those of you who know Sensei Hovind within the Bujinkan, um, I don't know how many people know that he used to be a financial analyst. He used to be a financial whiz-bang way back in the day. Um, and in his book, Ninpo, Living and Thinking as a Warrior, which I highly, 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 hint, hint, nudge, nudge, elbow, elbow, headbutt in the face, um, highly recommend uh, a reading, right? Um, I think there's a couple of techniques in there you might learn from, but uh, as far as like fight things, but he has a whole chapter on uh, finances. And I, I was really conflicted when I first read it, but in today's world, at this point in my life, at this point in my, in my, the way I do things, um, I absolutely get it. That, If I had a $1,000 extra and I had the choice, donate it to a charity or go on vacation, I would go on vacation. And most people see that as greedy, selfish. Look at all the people you could help with that. The only people I'm going to help with it when I do it, when I donate it to a charity is the administrators. Because 95% or better of that donation goes to operation costs. And all those neat commercials that make you cry and donate your money. Right. I once told a group that was going to they wanted uh, money to clothe and feed people in Appalachia. If you know where that is. Right. No jobs. They walk on dirt. Whatever. And I said, I'll donate if you promise me that you're going to move them someplace where there are jobs and clean water and better conditions. They hung up on me because they would be out of a job if they solved the problem. Okay? But why go on vacation? Because everything I do from the moment I book the cruise or the hotel or the rental car, or whatever. Goes into other people's pockets. Salaries are paid out of that. Yes, I know the business owners make money and stuff. Well, that keeps people having jobs. Right. And I'm not splitting hairs about who gets what. Right. Because to do that, we'd have to have a conversation about who has the greatest risk. So. But anyway. Right. It's not just those from that all the way to the tips that I give. To the guy moving my luggage at the airport, if I choose to use that service or the wait staff someplace or whatever, not only am I relaxing and recharging and exploring the world and doing my my, uh, nature connection work, and, and things like that. But I am directly, I am helping more people directly and indirectly than I would by giving a donation. So it's just a difference in thinking has nothing to do with selfishness. If you just if you heard what I just said, everything I said, yes, I'm benefiting out of it as well. But it's a win win win. And I'm taking direct responsibility and choice with who gets my money. Not they send me a, a letter that tells me who I'm saving or who I'm helping, but what they're not showing me is a financial breakdown as to where every dime goes. Cause they don't dare do that. Right. So. Right. I'm wielding the sword. Except in this case, the sword is my dollar. Right. Or my card or whatever. Right. I'm wielding it. Doing it any other way would be like me drawing the sword and handing it to Dave and say, Hey, Dave, Handle this for not that I don't trust that Dave would handle it for me, but that's advocating responsibility because I'm pretty sure if I'm standing there with Dave, Dave's going to whip out his beautiful staff and hit them with edged or uh, blunt force trauma weapons and stuff while I come at him with something else. So anyway, all right, what do we got, James? <clears throat>
1: Uh, Julia said that she liked and shared.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Julia.
1: And Victor's on and said he always thought you looked like Arn Anderson, the wrestler. He always thought he
0: looked like or I look like. You look like. Personally, I think he and I look like twins, except he's taller and better looking.
1: (laughs) And he also said that he believes weapon equals tools equals leverage.
0: Absolutely. As long as those things are sharp, as long as they are functional, reliable, right? And you can operate with them under pressure. Because, again, I'm going to default back to that one quote from Matsumite today. If you cannot do what you cannot do when you must, you will die. Two least practice skills by people, even people who are, like, crack shots with firearms. Let's say sidearms. Let's go back to that police officer. Uh, and I started all this, no, I'm not even gonna go to him, cause I don't even know if that freaking gun's gonna come out of his holster. Right? It could be just corroded in place. Um, but for all the shooting skills, for all the maneuvering and all that kind of stuff, the two least practiced skills, and I hammer these in when I do, when I do firearms training, is drawing and reloading. Under pressure. People brag about their shot group and they brag about the caliber and they brag about, yeah, I know, but can you get it out? Under pressure. When you're reduced to gross motor skills, can you reload the damn thing? Gross motor skills. Panicking. Right? Pieces of brick chipping off as bullets just miss you. Right? Um it's a huge difference. Right? So they op- they 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 do I absolutely agree. They are those things. But that thing from say that quote was not a stutter. Okay. Think about that. If I cannot do what I cannot do, right? If I got complacent and I have a false sense of confidence about techniques that work most of the time in the dojo. Right. Or I've done them a couple of times and I, you know, think I have them, but I really don't. And then I need them on the street. Or I have these skills. This is the other side of training that, that most people don't think about. That I could have taken to a fifth tier, which is our resolve and our commitment and our ability to do what needs to be done and not stall because I can't bring myself to damage another human being. And don't tell me that you can if you've never done it. Because I've seen it happen. People work just fine in training. I've also seen people quit martial arts. I've seen people quit jobs, law enforcement, military, whatever, because psychological or emotional basket case afterwards because they had to take a life or they had to break somebody. So we could have the skills. We could be great at it. We could have pressure tested them and everything. But when the moment comes, if I'm shitting my pants and I have an operational shutdown, my whole system backfires on me, right? Because I don't handle stress well and all my training was in a controlled environment, right? Um, Or I absolutely cannot bring myself to damaging another human being. Or I can't hurt this person. True story, been there. I can't do my job and restrain this person when his wife and child walks in the room. And the little boy has a look of terror in his eyes because I'm on top of his dad who just tried to seriously injure several people. And the wife just looks crushed. No, I could. And I did. But if you think that it didn't affect me in my head and my heart, just like you can't get certain faces out of your head that you've caused to drop permanently or otherwise, those faces will never go away either. Because karmically... I damaged them and probably more because dad's head and heart wasn't in that. I mean, his head and heart was in the fight, but he was in killer mode because he was in the military. He was, he was in killer mode and he was somebody who lifted weights and he was way bigger than me and whatever. But head and heart, if he got affected by it, it was whatever happened relationship wise. Afterwards, I don't know that that little boy doesn't still have this picture of this military cop having his dad in a restraint position that he didn't understand, but all he knows is he was on top of him. His dad was face down and in his little mind being attacked. I don't know what the wife still thinks or ex-wife if they're that way or if she's even still alive or whatever. I know that I'll never get their faces out of my out of my head. So anyway, we'll let that one trail off. What do we got, James?
1: <clears throat> there's nothing else right there.
0: Alright. So um all right, well in that case if there's nothing else uh, we will be working over here now that I'm back and James is back and we're never going to ever take a vacation at the same time again, unless we have other people trained to be able to manage things and keep them going at the same time, um, ever again, because <laughs> that didn't go as smoothly as we planned. Um, so, uh, but now that we're back, uh, we will be, uh, getting, uh, seminars and workshops and all that kind of stuff. On the, on the training schedule, so the dates for at least spring camp, uh, and some other things will be coming out. For those of you who are, um, have either gone through the 37 fundamentals program, uh, or the first seven steps on the path of Buddha, or you're just generally interested in Mikyo and that kind of training, there are prerequisites and whatnot. Um, but if you're interested in that, uh, there are two programs that I'm on the fence about which one to pick, so I'm going to just kind of toss this out there and see what comes back. Because I, Jared is on and uh Victor's on and uh, some folks that that have been through this program. I don't know if Giles is on or any of those other guys, but um, I could do one called uh, it's it's uh, the, the, the full term is the Sadhana of the Thirteen Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Um, it is it's directly out of the Shingon school and it is based on a mandala and um, uh, there's an Omote and Uda side to it and whatnot. And it's kind of a bridge crossover between the exoteric and the esoteric to help understand it. The way I cover it um, is from, from a really hidden side uh, that has to do with a path of progress and development. So, uh, once somebody goes through this, they could apply it to that side of things, or they could directly apply it to um, to being able to as a framework to uh, recognize ability within their budo, just not just with techniques, but with themselves as a warrior protector, learning things to be able to accomplish things. Okay. So there's that, and then there's a different one that is is Mikyō, but it's also directly related to uh, our ninpo. And it's actually a second. The way I normally teach this stuff, it's a second level, kuji being third, right? There's the godai no Rin, which is these power rings with the, with the fingers, and it's 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 a kuji light. Um, where you're understanding this whole idea of the three bodies, uh, the, the visualization, the mantra. There really is no mantra with this. It's a breathing method. And then there's body ways of doing it. And there's also the hands. Um, that one typically gets split up into four or five different full trainings. So that's not as easy as it sounds, right? Um, this, the one I'm thinking of now, I normally do as a second level for those people who have done that. But in this case, um, I'm, so it's going to be like a first time that I would end up doing it as a standalone, but it's known as the Goshin Bo and it is psychological self protection. Okay? And so there is visualization, there is mudra, there is mantra. Um, there's three, three, levels or three perspectives in the way it's transmitted. And then there's an initiation into the, each of these pieces and whatnot. Um, That is directly Nikkyo. So I could do this 13 Buddhism Bodhisattvas, or I could do Goshen Bo. Either way, I'm doing both of them. But now again, don't pipe up. uh, I'm going to be very, very direct at the moment. Somebody telling me what their preference is, who, one, has no intention of taking the training or knows that they have good intentions, but they never commit to anything, does neither of us any good. And certainly not the group of people that would actually be benefiting from things. So if that's you, I'm going to ask that you not tell me one way or the other, um, because... And not going to do it anyway. Okay. Um, so if you are earnestly interested and interested in actually committing to it and doing it, if, if, uh, not if, when I do it, okay, then I would like to know what your preference is. And if you don't have a preference, then you, know, you can tell me that, but I don't buy that, right? Um, If you don't have a preference, tell me why you don't have a preference. And it's not like, I'm here to learn everything. Uh, Okay. Well, great. But I'm giving you a chance to tailor your training. So, okay. Um, step outside of the Western education system and stop expecting to be spoon fed. Okay. So there's that. Okay. Now I just, I'm sure I pissed off at least one person there. James, what do you think? Happens all the time. It's wintertime. It's bound to be a snowflake falling out of the sky somewhere. I'm a dick. I know. <laughs> anyway. All right. Um, that goes for those of you who are listening to the recordings, listening to um, uh, through Apple Podcasts and all that kind of stuff. Now, caveat, if you're listening to this after somewhere between March 1st and March 15th, right, when I will have already made a decision and we will already have gotten started, um, it won't matter because the program will be available <laughs> online anyway that you'll go through as a do-it-yourself kind of thing. This is for a live guided program that will end up being the one that everybody else goes through. So those folks who go through the program live up front not only get a shit ton of extra help, but actually help tailor the program into the kind of – uh end product that it ends up being right if i can use the word product but um so anyway so your choice right is that one that's basically essentially a path and will work through external and internal manifestations of the different steps and phases on this path of enlightenment that actually ends up with a feedback loop um and and Goes through all of these different aspects of ourselves and the world and ties them together. It's just really, really old things. In fact, the of 13 Buddhism, which this mandala actually predates the Taizokai and Kongokai mandala, right? They, historically, the, uh, the mandala of the, the 13 came first and then the Taizokai and then the Kongokai. So you go from 13 to 9. To five. OK, so the five obviously encapsulate the, the nine and the nine encapsulate the 13 or whatever. It's just um, it's, it's very dynamic. Right. Um, so we'll take a look at how it's done esoterically. We'll take a look at how it's done uh, esoterically, um, dive into these different aspects, which are both aspects of universal truth and aspects of um, the characteristics within ourselves. That can be developed and honed. So there's that, and that's choice one, and then choice two. And don't send me a number. I picked number one because I may forget which one I picked, I, I laid out as number one and number two. But second option is the Goshin Bo, which just looked like five, uh, five exercises, but uh, we will be going through those five uh, levels, those five aspects of the Goshin Bo is psychological self protection. Goshin means self-defense, self-protection. Um, three different ways, three from three different perspectives. And each one of those things has... You have to remember, everything in Mikyo is, is like, again, I, I make this reference to those little capsules that you can buy in a toy store that looks like a little, you know, cold capsule or something, right? You drop it in water and the capsule dissolves and this big-ass frickin' um, yeah. Foam, uh, animal shape kind of grows out of it or a washcloth or a hand towel or whatever that's hundreds of times bigger. So within each one of these things, they're a condensed form that represents and points to these bigger lessons, right? So this is not, this is not a shortcut and it's not magic. There's a lot of fucking work into getting this stuff that when you Tune your mind, you tune the sound, and you tune the action. It looks simple, but there's a lot behind it. They're, they're condensed versions of this whole thing. It's kind of like when you say any um, kata, right? Hatsumi has always said he could write an entire book on any kata. So just learning a kata and writing down your little crib notes, right? Okay? um how much is actually behind that I know, for at least half the people out there it's just the moves but right everything between the name why it was named that way the lineage that it came from and what their principal or uh or primary combat principles are uh perspectives why it was developed that way at that particular time in history based on the types of armor and weapons and clothing and it just it was very, very different, right? So anyway, um, so those are your two choices. Those, and, and, and I want to start one here pretty quickly because I've got some folks that, that went to, went through two uh, preparatory courses that um, are ready to go on to the next one. Now, um, James, if you could, if you could, uh, and also uh, some folks, I just sent out a lesson uh, recording from a lesson that we did on Friday. Um, so I've had a couple of questions about where's a good place to start. Um, we're still working through Module Two, the Realm of the Tactical Warrior program, but we've got what ten weeks of, of lessons already preloaded in that. So um, you could post that link. And for those who are looking to go through the whole thing, um, we could either schedule a call and I could go through the whole inner circle platinum program. Or if you don't think you're ready for module two yet, then James can post the link to the module one uh course as well. And then you can just kind of take a look at that stuff. So there's that. So I guess we're going to post out four, four links, right? Um, Cause I think they're all set, right? So we've got, uh Module 1, the Foundations of Ninja Self-Defense program, right? Module 2, Realm of the Tactical Warrior. We've got the Sanji Shichidobo on the 37 Fundamentals course, and we have the First 7 Steps on the Path uh, course. The last two that I just named, especially the the First 7 Steps path, is an absolute prerequisite to doing anything Mikyo moving forward. So even if you don't take the course, you will have to tell me whether or not you've taken it, and if you have not, there will be a preliminary test, and you'll have to know the stuff. Otherwise, it will cripple everybody else that's trying to go through it because, one, it'll slow everybody else down because I'll have to teach something that they will have already known, and two, it'll make no freaking sense. It'll just sound like a bunch of new-age mumbo-jumbo and I'm not, I'm not bastardizing any of this stuff for somebody who wants to take a shortcut. That's just ego driving, and I don't have time for that. Right? An eagle couldn't find truth if it's shit on it. All right. We good? Anything else, James? Anything else pop in? Anybody put their hand up and saying, yes, I pissed them off? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, good then. Yeah. That's yes, right. All right, guys. That's it. We're back on track. So I will talk to everybody. If not before, if you're not in one of the programs or you're not planning on being on for Wednesdays, uh, whiteboard Wednesday topics going to be popped up tomorrow. Um, if not anytime in between now and then, I'll see you next time on Kuden. Get more of Kuden radio. Subscribe through your favorite podcasting site or join our clan of serious modern warriors at OnlineNinjaAcademy.com.